I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 42, verses 18 through 23. Isaiah chapter 42, starting at verse 18. Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind? like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord. You have seen many things, but you pay no attention. Your ears are open, but they do, you do not listen. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness to make his law great and glorious, but this is a people plundered and looted. All of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot, with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Word of the Lord. I'm going to watch a short video clip to start us out. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? So how many of you saw the bear the first time? A couple of you, good job. I missed it the first time I watched it. The second time I watched it, maybe a year later, I knew I was supposed to be looking out for something. I remembered there was like a, a gotcha in the video, so I paid extra attention and still missed it. Uh, none of us who put our eyes on that video this morning are, are blind. But most of us suffered from something called inattentional blindness. That's what it's called when something is plainly visible in front of us, but we're distracted by other things and we don't see it. Inattentional blindness. This passage we just read is addressed to God's people while they are in exile. They've known God for many generations. He's provided for them and protected them and cared for them, and yet not all generations of God's people have responded faithfully. Here again, the words of God given through the prophet Isaiah. He says, hear you deaf, look you blind and see who is blind but my servant and deaf like the messenger I send. Who is blind like the one in covenant with me, blind like the servant of the Lord. God has been before them, right there in front of them, but they have not seen or known him. They've suffered from inattentional blindness. They've been distracted by many other things. The problem, of course, is that they're not missing a man in a bear costume. They're missing God. They're failing to see the most significant thing that is before them. They're, they're missing the point of everything. And not only are they living outside of the joy of knowing the Lord, but they're missing the purpose that God is calling them to. 
and their purpose is so significant, so central to what God is doing. Israel is called to be a light to the nations. Their task is to introduce the world to God, and right now they don't even seem to see Him. We have a common phrase in English for this. We, we call it the blind leading the blind, and we see examples of it all the time. We see world leaders who promise all kinds of change, great change in the world, and they amass crowds of followers. But the change they bring, if it isn't aligned with, with what Jesus is doing, with the change Jesus is bringing, they're simply the blind leading the blind. Everyone wants to change the world for the better, and there are all kinds of devices and strategies and approaches to doing that. And in the end, what's most often revealed is our own blindness. It's human arrogance. We can see the world's problems. Anyone can do that. But unless the solution put forth is Jesus, all of our solutions fail equally. We can try and succeed in changing the world, but only Jesus can change it for the better. Outside of Jesus, we cannot see working solutions, and we cannot even see that we can't see working solutions. And so we try in vain and fail spectacularly because the only solution is Jesus. Israel has been blind to God and blind to their calling, their purpose in Him. They failed to live into that purpose. The world has not come to know God through Israel's faithfulness. So what might God do with them? What might be next for them? How does God approach the one who has failed Him? What does He do with a person who has been called to a task that they have not completed? How far aside does He cast the blind guide? How deep into the ocean does he cause them to plummet? Listen to God's response to his people as we read from the next chapter of Isaiah, chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. But now, this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I, the Lord, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by name, my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isn't that wonderful? To a people who have failed, who have looked but not seen, and who have heard but not perceived, and who have not completed the task that God has assigned to them, God says to them, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. That is who our God is. I have redeemed you, he says. He says, you are mine. 
Israel is in exile in this passage. God did not spare them from the consequences of their decisions. They relied on their own might rather than trusting in God, and because their own might was not enough, their nation fell. But though they abandoned God, God did not abandon them. Though they loved themselves rather than loving God, God's love for them remained. Do not fear, he says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. If you are here today, and you know the inconvenience that a few others of us here know of being an imperfect person, well, this is good news. Now, if you're perfect, this is incredibly frustrating. Those imperfect people don't deserve any of God's generosity, do they? But if you're here and you're imperfect, like I am, well, this is welcome news. That God looks upon his imperfect people and he does not cast us aside for our imperfections or abandon us for our sin as we are so prone to abandoning him. But he says instead, you are mine. I'm going to read a portion of that passage again, and I, I encourage you just to drink it in. Just, just hear it and rest in it. Settle down in its truth. God says to a people who have failed him again and again, a tragically imperfect people, he says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Praise God. I want us to see that God does not say to Israel, and he does not say to us, I have summoned you by name because you are flawless. He says, I have summoned you by name. You are mine. See, God still intends to heal the world, and he still intends to use Israel as a part of it. But God isn't using Israel because of their flawless piety. Rather, God is using them because he is a God of redemption, and he loves them. He's using them because he loves them and because he loves everyone else and intends for Israel to be used according to his purposes for the redemption of all people. There are no perfect people. There are just people learning to love God perfectly. And there is no flawless church. God calls his people and his church to be holy as he is holy, to love with our lives, to strive for Christ's likeness, to conform our desires with his desires, and to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we strive to live according to that standard, both as individual Christians and as a collective of Christians that form the church and this church. But Jesus is history's only example of perfection. So what do we do with the imperfect church or the imperfect Christian? I love this church. I love Calvary community. I, I wake up every morning praising God for the privilege of serving here. This church, each of you are a blessing and you are loved. But we are not a perfect church. We don't have a perfect past, and we, don't, we won't have a perfect future. Pastors are often told early in their studies, if you ever find a perfect church, leave it before you have a chance to mess it up. We're not a perfect church, 
And I am in no way discouraged by that because I believe that we are a faithful church. I believe that we are a church in pursuit of Jesus. There are no perfect people and there are no perfect churches, but there is joy to be found in the imperfect church. And I want to take a minute to, to just zero in on that joy. We're going to be let down sometimes, sometimes by people who are doing their very best and still get it wrong. And when we are let down, we can abandon the whole project or we can remember that the same God who is at work redeeming us is redeeming everyone else too. See, the joy that we find in an imperfect church is named in this passage. We've already read over it again and again. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I'm summoning, I have summoned you by name, you are mine. The joy we find in an imperfect church and among imperfect people is that Jesus is at work perfecting us. He's redeeming us. Sometimes we are painfully imperfect, but God is so very faithful to his people, so very patient, and he is in the business of redemption. The joy that we find is that Jesus is faithful to us despite our imperfections, and he offers us something that perfect people never get to experience. He offers us redemption, and it's beautiful, and there is joy to be found in being redeemed. I've wondered at times if maybe one of the biggest things churches lack is humility. When the church gets the idea that that, that kind of person is in need of restoration, that healing that God brings is for the kinds of people who need it, those, those sinners, but forgets the restoration that we ourselves are in need of, and the healing that Jesus is bringing to us, well, then we become blind guides, blind to our own tragedy as we fruitlessly try and lead others out of theirs. And if we can't see our own need for Jesus, as evidenced by our own imperfections, we certainly can't lead others to their need for, for him. This work of Jesus is a restoration project, and it doesn't start with the world around us. It starts with us. Two years into a pandemic now, we know all about contagion, right? We've heard all kinds of things about hand hygiene and micro droplets and how contagion is spread. We're probably sick of hearing it. Illness is contagious. That's the message I grew up hearing in the church, actually. Sin is contagious. And so I was warned as a kid, don't be around people who sin because sin is contagious. It'll catch you too. Don't associate with that kind of person. But what if there's more to it than that? What if holiness is contagious? What if restoration was contagious? What if when Jesus encountered people who were sick, or, or blind, or deaf, or leprous, or dead, the reason that he put his hands on them is because what he had was more contagious than what they had. What if the people who were being restored became the restorers, spreading restoration wherever they went, because, because we understand that this thing that God is doing in us is contagious? What if we became partners in the work of Christ because we have been exposed to him. And he said to us, I formed you, I've redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. If redemption is contagious, may it start in us 
so that it might spread through us and infect others. Now listen carefully to this promise. Isaiah 43, starting in verse 2, says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. The promise is, I will be with you. It is not, there will be no trials. He does not say, you will not pass through the waters. You will not walk through the fires. He says, I will be with you. I will be faithful to you. It's on this week each year on the church calendar, the the Sunday after Epiphany, that the church reflects on the baptism of Jesus. I want to read to you from Luke's gospel, the account of Jesus' baptism. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 15. And it says, The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John, John the Baptist, might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then jumping ahead a bit to verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. When the people around John the Baptist wondered if John might be the Messiah, John said, I am not the Messiah. The Messiah is greater than I am. He will purify redeem and forgive. Actually, the NIV translates it as, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Fire in scripture is often used to describe the act of purifying. Fire is a purifying agent. Precious metals are purified through a melting process in fire. Chaff is burned away and wheat is preserved. Fire destroys the excess and the unneeded and leaves the good and the valuable. In Isaiah, God says through Isaiah, you will walk through fire, but you will not be consumed. We're not a perfect people, but God is at work in us burning away chaff. We're not a perfect gathered people, a perfect church, but God is at work in us, purifying us with the Holy Spirit and fire. We balance knowing that we are imperfect and capable of causing hurt and deeply in need of humility with the work that Jesus is doing to restore us, to burn away chaff and to make us holy as God is holy. We celebrate with joy the wonderful truth that God is our Redeemer, that we are invited through baptism into a body of faith that He is at work perfecting, as He is at work perfecting us. We're called to holiness, and part of that call is to let the chaff burn away and to celebrate the redemption that God offers us 
as we find peace in the promise that we are His, and He calls us by name. And so we have the joy of asking, Lord, what needs to be burned away in my life right now so that I might be purified in Your presence, so that I might know the joy of the redemptive work of Your Spirit in my life? What needs to be surrendered? What needs to be purified? What needs to be given over to you next? What redemption is in store for me today in order that I might participate in your redemption of all things? How will the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus shape and inform my life? How will Christ be alive in me today? Will you join me in prayer? Precious Lord, we are so grateful for the work that you do in our lives. That you separate the wheat and the chaff and burn away the chaff. That though we walk through the fire, we are not consumed. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your Holy Spirit who is at work in us, who invites us to reflect you more and more as we lean into the people that you call us to be and trust in the redemptive work of your hand. Father, we pray for greater trust today, that we might experience a new movement of your spirit in our lives. We pray that we would lean in closer and closer that you would make us new. Father, we confess that we have all been let down or disappointed or hurt among your people at some point in our lives. Father, give us humility to recognize that as you are at work redeeming us, so you are at work redeeming them as well. And as long as there is work to do, there are imperfections. Help us to respond with Christ-likeness as we allow your spirit to heal wounds and to offer a new future both to us and to the one who hurt us. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the joy of redemption, of not only being your people and not only the call you have placed on our lives, but the ways that you conform us to that, that purpose that you are calling us to, the ways that you make us holy as you are holy. We love you, Lord. And we give you praise for the work that you are doing in us and through us as we strive to be redeemed redeemers. We praise you, Father. Amen.